Well, this morning, audience participation time. You ready? Audience participation. How many of you guys are animal lovers? Animal lovers here? Oh, man, a good portion of you guys. Okay, a good portion. Well, I love animals as well until they start acting like animals. You know, uh, animals driven by their instincts. They have no concept of what is proper. And they will do the most animalistic things as well right in front of you. I suppose if you were raised on a farm, you're used to animals acting like animals. But for me, I prefer, I prefer the civilized type of animals. You know, like in the Pixar and Disney movies who talk and sing and act like humans. You know, I have yet to find one of those for my own pet, but that's what I prefer. And speaking of civilized animals, as a child, I remember my first truly traumatic moment where I was grief-stricken bursting into tears when Charlotte died in the movie Charlotte's Web. Um, you know, that was a traumatic experience for me. And, you know, and then there was the Disney movie Bambi, where you watched Bambi's mother die as well. I mean, these are all very traumatic childhood movies. But have you noticed in the most movies and stories that feature animals, animals are elevated to human-like status? I don't know if you've noticed that. Okay. Evolutionary theories suggest humans are nothing more than animals. However, our cultural entertainment says otherwise, regularly elevating animals to human status. But what about the sad opposite of that? Humans acting like uncivilized animals. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man... As the title suggests, he develops his observation about society reducing mankind to being something less than human. Chapter one of his book is entitled, Men Without Chests. Now I know when we hear that in our muscle-bound society today, we might think men without chests means weak men who live in perpetual adolescence in their parents' basement or who don't have a big chest and don't have a six-pack. But that's not what C.S. Lewis meant. C.S. Lewis meant that a man without a chest did not have the capacity to determine what was most lovely or beautiful or good. Therefore, that man ended up being driven by his gut appetites like animals do. Paraphrasing, I'm paraphrasing what C.S. Lewis is thinking about this concept here. He says this, the head, the rational component of man, rules the belly, okay? the belly, the appetites, through the chest, the heart that determines what is most lovely or what is pleasant. So, a man whose heart's affections have not been trained to love what is truly lovely is destined to be ruled by a head who only thinks with the belly and the gut appetites. So, a man who has a chest, he has been appropriately trained in his heart to love what is good, to delight in what is truly delightful. He will have a rational capacity to say no to his gut instincts and train his desires for what is truly beautiful. And that separates us from animals who only pursue what their immediate 
gratification is. Let me give you an illustration of something that is beautiful. And I think we can all agree, if we have chests, that we can agree that this is beautiful. Imagine a man and a woman who have been married for 40 years. They have been practicing God's principles of marriage, including God's ways of intimacy and marriage as well. They don't just say that they have a good marriage out loud, but when you're around them, they are comfortable with one another. They consider one another. They are affectionate with one another. Their eyes are full of one another. And they regularly joke, embarrassing their kids, about wanting to get home and be with one another. This beautiful couple, their way of marriage should turn our heads as true beauty does turn our heads if we have a chest. So in Lewis's term, a heart or chest trained in looking for what is truly lovely and beautiful will say, I want that kind of marriage. Therefore, I'm going to say no to my instinctual gut desires of ignoring problems when they arise or allowing bitterness to arise or harboring grudges or escaping to pornography or illicit um, immorality in my marriage or to flirting with another who might better fulfill me. Men without chess will follow all of these instinctual desires that do not result in a beautiful and satisfying marriage. Now, with those thoughts in mind, please, if you will, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, and at the end of the sermon, I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 22. So if you want to do that now, Psalm 22 as well, and just know that I will get there at the end of the sermon today. So first passage, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, that's on page 184. In the back section of the Bible, in the chair in front of you, and then put a little envelope or something at Psalm 22. We'll get there at the end. Well, we are coming down to the home stretch of our annual series, Hope for Everyday Life. And this fall, we are studying Second Peter with a theme of growing in grace and knowledge. And that's taken from the last verse, the actual last verse of Second Peter, which says this. Peter exhorts his audience in this way, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have been present with us for the last two weeks, Peter's emphasis has been on warning about false teachers. And I know it's been a kind of a challenging thing. It's not always immediately applicable or relevant as we, as we think about it, but um, you cannot grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, the truth, If you are listening to false teachers, if you're listening to lies. So in chapter 3, which we won't see today, but in the future, in chapter 3, Peter will lay his cards on the table about when he tells his audience the errors of the false teachers that he's talking about. And the error of the false teachers that he's talking about is that they deny that Jesus will come again and execute judgment when he comes again. And as a practical implication of that false teaching then, it doesn't really matter how we live now. Now, true understanding of the glorious teaching about Jesus' grace in the first coming and 
judgment in the second coming must result in a change in our life now. And that's why Peter started the letter with, okay, add to your faith moral excellence, and to that add self-control, and to that godliness. So Jesus' first coming in grace and his second coming in judgment, which these teachers were denying, must result in a changed and changing lifestyle. Christ did not simply come and save us from something, but he came to save us to something more beautiful, more better, satisfying, and eternal. These false teachers and their teaching resulted in a lack of personal holiness. And Peter will refer, and we'll see it in the text today, Peter will refer to these false teachers and their lifestyle in animalistic-type ways. So today we're considering this, considering the character of false teachers. Let's start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We'll get a running start at verses 10 through 16. So the Word of God in verse 1 says this, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Okay? If you will, please say sensuality. Say that. Okay. Driven by their appetites, there it is, men without chess. Driven by their appetites. And they, so, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth, the beautiful way of truth, a heart that is trained in what is lovely, their heart is not trained in what is lovely and best. They will malign the truth. Jump down to verse 10. Peter now gives a more robust description of these false teachers, and these six verses, seven verses here, are the content of our time together this morning. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires. There you have it again. Driven by their appetites, men without chess in C.S. Lewis's terms. And they despise authority, daring, self-will, and they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not even bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Verse 12, but these, here we go, animalistic terminology, these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured or killed and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of these creatures also themselves be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count, notice, notice, they think, they count it, pleasure, okay, their head, okay, rules the belly through the heart, and what do they think is pleasurable to, to, to carouse in the daytime? They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Again, you see 
Okay, enslaved to their appetites, men without chest in C.S. Lewis's term. Enticing, unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They exercise, oh my goodness, they exercise, they exercise in some other way, trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the insanity of a prophet. We'll, we'll talk about that funny story in a little bit here, but the animal, the donkey in this case, became more human than the man. <laughs> we'll see that in just a little bit. Now, in this passage, Peter offers a scathing description of these false teachers. And in so doing, however, he is giving a detailed description. And folks, we, it's, it would be easy here to just think of them out there, false teachers. So it would be so easy for us to just say, hey, false teachers out there, they're behaving this way. Or some of them are. But let's not just think about them out there. Because what Peter is doing here is describing the nature of the old man of sin. That's what he ends up doing here. So today, yes, we need to think about false teachers and many times their characteristics. But we also need to think about where we have come from in our old man of sin. I'm going to use the phrase old man of sin here to refer to what Christ is saving us from. And that phrase, the old man, comes from Ephesians 4.22 where the Apostle Paul says, in regard to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old man, okay, which is being corrupted according to deceitful desires. So here's what we're talking about this morning. Three truths to understand regarding the old man of sin that can be manifested in false teachers okay, and at the same time be helpful to us as you wrestle with sin and you see the remnants of the old man in the believer's life. Okay? He's not fully past yet. We still have all of, the, all of the hangovers for those in Christ of that old way of life that Christ wants us to put to death. The first truth is this. Understand that the old man of sin has a specific nature. I'm going to pull out three descriptions that Peter uses and to help us to see that the old man does not simply consist of isolated acts of sin. But the old man is an orientation, a nature, a disposition that characterizes us before Christ. So the first description is that the old man has a way of seeing. Notice that Peter says, having eyes full of something, full of adultery that never ceases from sin. These specific false teachers were not simply teaching wrongly, but they were living wrongly. In verse 2, we read, many will follow their sensuality. And I don't think Peter was just saying that metaphorically as, you know, they have a metaphorical adultery out there. They're committing spiritual adultery, although they were. They were, they were living immorally. They were teaching falsely. Now, right doctrine is necessary for right living. There, there is more that is essential to right living 
but at least right doctrine is necessary for right living. To be a man with a chest, to evaluate what truly is lovely, I need right doctrine. But notice how Peter describes these false teachers. Having eyes full of something. How did they see the world? They had eyes full of what? Full of thinking through the world in the way that would please themselves. And in this case, immorality and adultery. The old man has a way of seeing about him, and the old man has only one way of seeing. If you will, please say only. Only one way of seeing. Peter's term, full of, means to be thoroughly characterized by something. To be thoroughly characterized by something. And not technical prowess here. Man, if you could... um, advance the PowerPoint there. So the old man has a way of seeing in Peter's term full of, let's try it again. Okay. Okay. There we go. The term full of means to be thoroughly characterized by something. If I'm thoroughly characterized by something, then that something So if I'm thoroughly characterized by something, then that something is my nature or my disposition. Positively, the Apostle Paul uses that same word to describe the Roman Christians. I'm in a different book when Paul says this in Romans chapter 15. All right, men, Jonathan, if we could get that, there we go. And concerning you, my brethren... I myself also am convinced that you yourselves, here's the nature of the new nature, you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. And James uses that same term regarding the nature of God's wisdom. And the next verse here in James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, And here is the nature of God's wisdom, the characteristic of God's wisdom, full of mercy. Now, our Savior also spoke about a way of seeing out there and a way of fullness. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Right there, he's doing something. He's training us. He's training us to love what is lovely. And it's not the treasures on earth, but it's the treasures in heaven. There's your training of the chest. A mind that will think with what is truly lovely. Where your treasure is, there is your heart, which you love the most. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, what does your eye see? Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve or love. Oh, faith family, will you say this? Will you say love? Love. You cannot Love both God and wealth. Eyes full of something. 
a clear eye or a bad eye, a way of seeing what is truly beautiful or truly lovely, an orientation in my eyesight that results in either a body or a lifestyle full of light or full of darkness. Now, since you said love, this orientation also has a way of loving. Indulging the flesh in its corrupt desires, counting it a pleasure, loving the wages of unrighteousness. As you said in the Matthew passage that we just read, Jesus indicated this is about what we love in life. In Jesus' context, he was speaking about loving earthly treasures. But Peter uses the phrase, indulging the flesh with its corrupt desires. Peter's phrase, translated as indulging, means follow after something. And ironically, Peter had heard that phrase before. He had heard that phrase when Jesus Christ came to him, when Jesus first met Peter. He heard that from the mouth of Jesus when Jesus said, indulge me. Now, we don't translate it that way. Jesus Christ said this, Peter, follow me. Peter is using the exact same phrase here. And and characterizing these false teachers and their orientation, the old man, as following after something. When Jesus said to Peter, when Jesus first met Peter, follow me, indulge me, Jesus meant leave all other loves and love me alone. Follow me alone. So when Peter says this about the old man, okay? Indulging the flesh and its corrupt desires, what does he mean? Well, here's what he means. The old man of sin follows after corrupt desires. The old man of sin has pledged allegiance. I mean, think about that. Pledging allegiance to living animalistically. The old man of sin loves being, in C.S. Lewis's terms, a man without a chest. Peter also says of the old man this, he counts it a pleasure to revel, to carouse, focusing in on extreme comforts and ease and luxury and delights, to party in the daytime. And in verse 15, Peter says this, and he uses the word love, loves the wages of unrighteousness. You see, the old man has a way of loving. Faith family, do you recognize that God made you a being who loves? You will delight in something. You will take pleasure in something. And what you love and what you delight in, that's what you pursue. You can love what God says is unlovely. Or you can love what God says is lovely. But here's what you cannot do. You cannot not love. You will be loving something. Now, the last description that Peter uses to help us understand that the old man is not just isolated acts of sin. Growing up, when I first began to understand Christianity, I thought 
Christianity was simply a bunch of rules and regulations. And, but it was more than that. It's a way of loving, a way of delighting, loving what God loves, and that's a heart issue. And it was rescuing me from an old man of loving what is unlovely. And the last description that Peter uses to help us understand what the old man is, is that it is a way of living. Notice what he says here. Having a heart trained or exercised in greed. Again, notice that we are speaking about the heart. The heart of mankind, where our loves and our desires and our affections are. Peter uses another word for desires. He uses the word greed. But what is really shocking about Peter's statements in this particular passage is a heart that is trained. If you will, please say trained. Trained. Peter's word trained is the same word used by Paul. You'll recognize this. Many of you know this verse, but Peter's word trained is the same word used by Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 7, when Paul exhorts young pastor Timothy. He says this, discipline yourself, exercise yourself, train yourself for godliness. That's the same word. The old man of sin trains itself in living and loving the earthly pleasures and treasures of this world. Just as athletes train for competition, the old man of sin exercises, and it loves to exercise. Okay? Before Christ, we loved to exercise. We exercised ourselves in what I could get for me. Now, folks, let's spend a bit of time here applying what we learned so far in the point number one. It's not hard to see. The old man of sin, if I just look around the world, what are humanity's eyes full of? Okay? So the old man has a way of seeing. It has a way of loving. It has a way of living. The old man of sin. What are humanity's eyes full of? What does humanity love? What is humanity trained in? And you don't have to look far to come to a conclusion. What are we trained in? What are humanity's eyes full of? Well, what's sweeping our society today is immediate sexual fulfillment. That's what's going on in society. What we're full of is lusting after power, never-ending political revenge. One party impeaches the other president. The other party has to do a one-up on that. It just keeps going on and on. Like um, the old Bugs Bunny cartoons that I used to watch. When um, so Yosemite Sam would get out a gun, what would Bugs Bunny get out? A cannon. And they would just go on and on. That's what we love. What do we love? What are we trained in? Pursuing and grasping wealth. What do we love and what are our eyes full of? Eyes full of wanting your eyes on me. Popularity. You know, only in the last decade, I mean, what term do we use to take pictures of ourselves? What terms do we use to take pictures of ourselves? Selfie. And that's a good thing? (laughs) 
What is humanity's eyes not full of? What does humanity not love? What does humanity not exercise itself in? Things like this. Generosity. Okay. How about forgiveness? Regularly having my eyes full of wanting to forgive. How about loving, returning good for evil? How about training myself and giving something that actually costs me to somebody in need? How about my eyes full of listening carefully and shutting my mouth before I speak? How about loving, preferring others more than self? You know, the old man of sin does not see these as truly beautiful and satisfying. And that's why C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Abolition of Man, he says this um, about children. And uh, he says this, notice he'll use the term little animals. And I don't think he's using that in a derogatory sense because he's developing a thesis about the abolition of man. But he says this, the little human animal will not at first have the right responses It must be trained to feel pleasure, what is truly pleasurable, liking, disgust, and hatred of those things which really are pleasant, likable, and disgusting, and hateful. Training in loving what is lovely. Training in hating what is unlovely. My old man is not trained correctly coming out of the womb. I'm only an animal from the perspective of what my eyes are full of, what what I'm loving and the way of my living. And that's why growth and grace in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has to produce something different. Eyes full of seeing differently, loving differently, and living differently. Michael Wilcock assures that God's people are different than animals. People with chests, here's what he says, in the life of God's people, will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. They, God's people, will prize what the world calls pitiable, things like forgiveness. And God's people will suspect what the world thinks is desirable, fame, fortune, possessions. I'm so thankful for a church family that is just like this. Faith Church, thank you for you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have a host full of people that are loving what is lovely. By the way, in the second half of the Faith Community Institute, starting starting soon, I'll be teaching a course on the hearts. It's called um, um, The Heart of Change. That takes a deep dive into understanding the heart and how to change. If you have not had that course before, I would love to have you in that course Um, The Heart of Change, when it starts, I believe it's on October 11th. You can sign up for that at faithlafayette.org slash FCI. So the old man has an orientation, and it's not simply isolated acts of sin. The second truth to understand regarding the old man is this. The old man of sin has specific summary characteristics. And the first one is this. It's deceived. Reviling in their deceptions. Faith family, what is the essence of deceit? I know you're going to say this. It's a lie. Okay. Yes, I get it. 
What is it a lie about? Believing a lie. A lie about what? Well, from the beginning, Satan deceived Eve by seducing her in believing that there is another way other than God's to be satisfied, full, and joyful in life. The serpent made it appear that disobedience would be good when it truly resulted in death and destruction and hardship. So the essence of deception is that there is another way to fulfillment other than God and his ways. For example, there's another way. Delight comes from using people sexually for my own pleasure. So I will involve myself in pornography or illicit sexual behavior. There's another way. Security comes from the accumulation of grasping for earthly wealth. Another way, avoiding hurts comes from me harboring grudges, dismissing or writing, writing people off, not investing in community and keeping myself from people. That's where avoiding hurt comes from. Another way, meaningful relationships come from me expecting to get from other people instead of me giving to other people. Another way, godly kids comes from me abrogating my parental responsibility and letting others, the church and the school, simply do the hard work. Hugh Hefner was the founder of Playboy magazine. Playboy was designed to create a generation of men without chess. Many fathers who exercised their hearts in this way also started to train their sons, thinking that they were teaching their sons what a real man should be sexually. Sadly and deceivedly, they were training a generation of young men to be men without chess. Hugh Hefner died in 2017. What was his legacy? What, how was he remembered? Okay. As a great model for humanity, as a sexual liberator, fulfill, was he remembered as a fulfilled and satisfied man who had lived a great legacy of a life? No, he wasn't. I'm going to quote from you, to you from the New York Times. The New York Times is not a conservative bastion of uh, great content, is it? (laughs) Notice what one of their journalists said of Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, after Hugh Hefner died. The arc of Hugh's life, the arc, vindicated his moral critics, conservative and feminists alike. We'll begin with talk of jazz and Picasso and other signifiers of good taste ended in a sleazy decrepitude that would have been pitiable if it wasn't still so exploitative. Early Hef had a pipe and a suit and a highbrow reference for every occasion. He even claimed to have a philosophy, which is that final refuge of the scoundrel. But late Hef, how did he end? was a lecherous, lowbrow Peter Pan playing at perpetual boyhood. Ice cream for breakfast, pajamas all day, while bodyguards shooed male celebrities away from his paid harem and the skull that grinned beneath his papery skin. Does that sound like a meaningful, fulfilled lifestyle? Does it? Say no. 
another way other than God's way does not deliver. The old man of sin is deceived. The second summary, summary characteristic is this. The old man is not just deceived, but the old man is proud. Despising authority, daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, reviling where they have no knowledge. You know, folks, we do not know precisely, you know, last week when Greg preached about all these angelic majesties, we don't know precisely what these false teachers were doing when Peter says they were reviling angelic majesties. But what is clear is that they were speaking arrogantly and thinking they know it all when they simply did not. A summary characteristic of the old man is that this is pride. Okay? And folks, not just with false teachers, but this is a common issue for all of us as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for me, I'm going to recommend to you this, pride and humility. I have to go back to this little booklet every year, and it continues to help me to wrestle with my old man and its remnants in my life the old man of sin, and pride that characterizes it. And I would encourage you to obtain that and read that regularly. Stuart Scott summarizes pride in this way. If we could sum it all up, here's a summary of the old man. It's the mindset of self, the pursuit of self-exaltation, a focus on the desire to control all things for myself just like an animal would. Okay? In exalting himself, the person actually believes, I am valuable and worthy. I am the source of anything good or wise or successful. I deserve the credit for whatever I achieve or acquire. I deserve love, admiration, and respect. All good things are from me, through me, and to me. All honor and glory should go to me for my enjoyment and pleasure. In that sense, it sounds like I am God, and that's what pride does, exalt myself to the position of God. Finally, a third summary characteristic is that the old man is animalistic. Like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the insanity or the madness of the prophet. You know, when the scriptures speak of pride and arrogance, you'll find that references to animalistic behavior are also close by. I could prove this in a number of ways, but the one that is most obvious is King Nebuchadnezzar. When King Nebuchadnezzar became proud, as a consequence, God turned him over to be what he was, animalistic, beastly. He ended up eating grass outside like a cow for seven years until he came to his senses, his human senses. And you can read about that in Daniel chapter 4. But Peter similarly has us recall this story about Balaam and a donkey. We do not have time to read that story starting in Numbers chapter 22, but in summary, however, Balaam was a false prophet. And at that time, way back in the Old Testament times, prophets were called seers. People would pay them to supposedly see divine things into the future. And part of the rich irony of the story of Balaam is that he is a seer who doesn't see. And a donkey actually sees better than him. Balaam was hired by an evil king to see God's people and supposedly magically curse their future destiny. God supernaturally makes the beastly Balaam speak words of blessing instead of cursing. 
changing the words of the beastly animal, Balaam. Now, Peter uses the phrase, he loved the wages of unrighteousness, referring to he was being paid. He loved money. His eyes were full of money. That's what he loved and lived for. Now, on his way to gain the wages and curse Israel, he was riding his donkey. And in one of the most hilarious and strange episodes in the Bible, God reduces the proud, irrational, and insane Balaam to be more foolish than the donkey as an illustration of what our pride does. Let's look at this real briefly here. But God was angry because Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now, Balaam was riding the donkey. And when the donkey saw, notice the the donkey sees, but Balaam doesn't see. The seer who doesn't see. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey, turned. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or the left. Balaam was going away that the Lord did not want him to go, and only the donkey knew better. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with a stick, and the Lord opened the mouth of the beastly animal. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? If that's not crazy enough, when your donkey starts to talk to you, are you going to start talking back? (laughs) Then Balaam said to the donkey, he engages in a full-fledged conversation with the donkey. Because you have made a mockery out of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to doing this? And he said, no. And then the angel of the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. The surprise in this story is not that a donkey talks, but what is more, insane Balaam engages in a conversation with the animal. The point here is God enabled the donkey to have her eyes more full of God's ways than Balaam. In this story, the donkey is elevated to be human-like, and Balaam is lower to be less than donkey. Our old man, here's the point, and it's a, it's a negative point, I know, but I'm going to give you some good news in a little bit, and I know I'm close to overtime. I am overtime, but say it's going to be okay. It'll be okay, okay? Our old man reduces us to being something less than animalistic. Here's the good news. Well, one piece of the good news. In the Balaam story, God gave an animal a new nature in order to speak what is right. The donkey spoke what is right. God gave the beastly donkey a new nature temporarily. And that's precisely what happens to us when God comes into our life and give us a new nature so that we become more than beasts. Thirdly and finally, the old man of sin has a sure end, destruction. 
Okay, we're not going to take time a whole lot here to park on this. Various pastors at our campuses spoke on this point last week, so we do not need to spend much time on this. And you say, Pastor Oak, when you have not been very encouraging now to us today. Well, look at the text I was given. There's seven verses here, and there's nothing positive in them <laughs> except this. Is it beneficial? And I'm not done yet. Remember, we have Psalm 22. Is it beneficial for us to know how the old man of sin operates? Is it beneficial for us to know? How can we change if we don't know? So by the, by, in God's graciousness, he has revealed this to us. So there's your positive aspects. But now, friends, I want to, in the, in the closing moments that I'm taking from you, from your time, look at Psalm 22 for just a moment. Look at verse 1. When we consider what we've been talking about, in Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said that? Who said that? Jesus did on the cross. Jesus cries out on the cross, the first line of that psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus appropriates this psalm to himself. Look at verse 6. Notice what he says. I am a worm and not a man. The psalm appropriated by Jesus indicates that Jesus somehow becomes less than a beastly creature and despised by the people. Look at verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening ravening and roaring lion, for dogs have surrounded me. Here's my point. This psalm that Jesus appropriated on the cross Jesus willingly submitted himself to be considered not even human, less than an animal, and he was willing to be consumed by beastly mankind. In this gospel work, Jesus loved what was truly lovely, giving his life for us beastly animals. In this work on the cross, he was most truly human, In this work on the cross, he was the ultimate man with the chest. And as we behold Jesus and his love for us, we begin to develop our own chest, and that takes us out of our beastly state, where we can begin to love those around us who are functioning animalistically. And then we can live like Jesus to a world, and that beauty turns people's heads. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you for loving us enough to give us a revelation of what we are truly like before Christ. Help us not just to see it in false teachers, but when the remnants of it are in ourselves, and help us to put that to death and love like Jesus has loved us in our beastly state. In Christ's name, amen.